Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I am really interested today to be interviewing Sally Hayden, um, a journalist who's written a really fascinating um, and quite detailed new book titled My Fourth Time We Drowned, published by Melville House Press in 2022, that details the stories um, of the migrant crisis, focusing on North Africa, especially Libya, um, that examines kind of all different stages of what happens to migrants who are attempting to cross the Mediterranean and get to Europe, um, both from Libya and from other parts of Africa, um, detailing their stories, um, both kind of the good and the bad, in this really um, it kind of a quite intense book, but in a lot of ways shows us quite successfully both the individual stories of particular people and speaks to the wider crisis and the politics that are involved. Um, So it's quite an accomplished book to cover all these different things. And so I'm really pleased to welcome Sally Hayden to the podcast to discuss it. Thank you so much for having me. So could you please start off by introducing yourself and your background? Yeah, sure. Um, So like you said, my name is Sally Hayden. I'm an Irish journalist. Um, I've been a journalist around nearly a decade now like maybe nine years and uh and I've been reporting on migration issues probably since 2014 2015 the year of the so-called European migrant crisis um and I've been freelance since 2016 so this book is the work of years of reporting um really and and at the moment I'm working also as the Africa correspondent for the Irish Times newspaper but I work for um, like a lot of other places as well I've worked for the Washington Post New York Times Newsweek Time magazine um, BBC like pretty much everywhere that you can imagine (laughs) well and as you sort of as that hints at um, you've worked at a lot of places and you've covered this issue in a lot of ways this has been something you've spent a lot of time on with exposés on TV and written journalism and social media and all sorts of ways you've engaged um, in this topic and reported on this topic. So what drove you to write a book on this issue? Yeah, I mean, um, to be honest, this, like I didn't set out to report on migration. I kind of, I had a staff job 2014 to 2016. And that was the year that I um, you know, refugees arriving in Europe, um, migrants arriving in Europe were making a lot of headlines. And so I started reporting then for Vice News, where I was working, um, just meeting refugees and trying to figure out what was going on. And of course, I then realized, you know, this is a lot more complex than it was being painted by politicians at that time or in the media, that actually people were coming from a huge number of different countries for a huge number of different reasons. Um, but I started just just meeting people and, and basically ended up uh, getting tips that led to a series of different investigations and what became kind of clear, what, like what's interested me about this all along is the things that aren't understood by the general public, like the, the parts of what is happening that actually challenge what our, what our preconceptions might be. Um, but I mean the reporting has kind of happened uh, still a bit by chance because because I started being contacted a lot by people in different countries who were looking for help or assistance and wanted me to report on various aspects 
of what was happening. And one of those messages came in August 2018 from a refugee who was locked up in a Libyan migrant detention center with 500 others who basically said that they had pretty much all tried to cross the Mediterranean Sea to reach Europe and been forcibly returned and locked up indefinitely without legal recourse in a detention center. Um, and yeah, sorry, this is a long answer, but but basically that message came out of nowhere. What happened in the aftermath was that my name, my number began to be passed around different detention centers um, where, where people had hidden phones. So it was like refugees were locked up with, you know, locked up indefinitely, but there were hidden phones inside and they basically started sending me evidence of what they were going through. And this was effectively a result of hardening European migration policy that had forced them away from Europe's borders. And the book came about, I mean, I didn't even set out to write a book, but I started gathering this information about a year in. Um, Someone asked me, would I try and write a book? And I initially thought that I didn't want to. And then I thought, actually, I'm gathering so much information of a situation that is not being properly documented. And in in my opinion, um, you know, Europeans were complicit in this, like this was being done in our name, and yet people weren't aware of it. And so I wanted to make sure that there was a proper documentation of this. And so around 2019, I started looking at whether I could write a book 2020 I got the book deal and then the result is what's just been published um in March my fourth time we drowned and yeah it was kind of a long process so it was basically an attempt to make sure that this is all actually being documented and also an awareness that these were testimonies and and voices coming from people who had been silenced or you know who were who were quite deliberately being silenced and I wanted to make sure that that, inf- that that evidence and that information was available. Thank you for explaining that. Um, I think it gives us a really great foundation for kind of unpacking some of the testimonies and stories that you record in the book. Um, and to kind of frame that, uh, can you explain some of the ways and reasons that lead to refugees ending up in Libyan detention centres? Yeah, so um, it's it's basically, you know, there's many different migration routes and we use the term migrants and refugees. I mean, this is, like I said, people coming from a huge number of different countries, fleeing a huge number of different situations. Um, but Libya is has kind of been like a jumping off point for people trying to get to Europe, particularly people from across Africa. So um as I'm sure a lot of people know, since 2011, there hasn't been a functional government in Libya. Um, that was when Gaddafi was ousted. And so in the aftermath of that, uh, more, you know, th- there's a variety of like problems across Africa, in, including like dictatorship in Eritrea, um, Al-Shabaab in Somalia, you know, war in South Sudan. And people who were fleeing these different situations uh, kind of met together in Libya with others who were fleeing, you know, extreme poverty in parts of West Africa um, and and other situations there in terms of insecurity. And uh, Libya has been a place where they where people take to the sea and try and reach either Italy or Malta. 
Um, and that's why Europe, basically the European Union, in the aftermath of the migrant crisis in 2015, there were kind of far-right politicians and, and groups were utilizing that to try and seize power. And uh, one of the responses was that more centrist or, or left-wing even politicians in Europe um, we're trying to make attempts to stop migration, basically, to stop this uh, from being used as a tool to, you know, to turn the continent more far right, I guess. And, um, and you know, we, we hear now the, you know, the so-called migrant crisis, that it's effectively over, or at least before Ukraine, that's what European politicians were saying. But actually what they were doing was just fortifying the borders, making sure that people couldn't actually get onto European territory. And so that's been happening. There was a deal done with the EU and Turkey. So that was done in the Eastern Mediterranean um, to stop people from crossing there. But then the more difficult thing for them was that because Libya isn't a functional state, uh, they had to come up with a way to try and stop people from crossing from Libya. So one of the answers that was found was to equip and train the Libyan Coast Guard, um, which is also kind of a looser collection of, you know, of people than you would imagine. But um, if you have someone fleeing, uh, basically under international law, it's illegal for European ships to return refugees or migrants to Libya because their lives are in danger there. But it's legal if a Libyan vessel does the interception and return. So what was happening was that the EU was carrying out surveillance and still is happening. The EU carries out surveillance, um, flying helicopters, planes, drones above the central Mediterranean to spot refugee boats now. And then the Libyan Coast Guard is the one that actually does the interception. So since 2017, more than 90,000 men, women and children have been intercepted like this. And what happens to them when they return to Libya is they're locked up indefinitely in um, detention centers that have been compared to concentration camps by Pope Francis, among others. And they don't have any legal recourse there. They don't have a lawyer. You know, they can't appeal. Um, they're not even charged, so they can't appeal the charges. And that's basically just become a system that's forcing people kind of out of sight out of mind you know um and the eu doesn't carry out proper like proper analysis in terms of the consequences of this in terms of what happens to people who are returned to libya and i know this because i've interviewed spokespeople for the eu border agency who say that it's not their responsibility once the refugees are intercepted or rescued as they would say it's not their responsibility to figure out for example how many people die when they return to detention centers or what happens to them in the aftermath um yeah and so it's it's kind of that's how they end up in detention basically that's a very sorry another long way of explaining that's how no, it's they, helpful to yeah that's how to they see the whole up, context yeah that's how they end up in the detention center so this is since uh the vast majority anyway seem to have ended up in detention centers and these are centers that are officially aligned with the un back government in tripoli but actually are being run by militias and so there isn't even proper oversight of what's happening in each one. So how then do the refugees in these detention centers communicate, particularly abroad? 
Yeah, I mean, this. so this was one of the very strange things for me when I started reporting on this. And this, I think, is why this type of reporting couldn't have happened, you know, until quite recently, because obviously now we have smartphones are permeating a lot more of our world and people will like one of the things I think if you just read about you know migration issues you don't understand that this the phone the sim card is you know the lifeline it's the way that somebody can call for help it's the way that they can get information which is really like the most precious thing to people who are in a detention situation or even people making a dangerous journey and so what I realized was in these detention centers phones are prohibited but um, detainees will do everything they can to either make sure that they keep a phone on them or that they can access a phone in some way or even that they keep a sim card on them so that if they come across a phone they can use it and so um, quickly it became clear that there were phones in these detention centers that were you know very well hidden and I uh, so I got that first message in August 2018. I started reporting on this. You know, I did all the verification, like asking for everything, GPS location, selfies, you know, contact details for families, because I was very skeptical as well. How is there a phone in this detention center? You know, how are they getting data? Even how are they getting electricity? And um, and it became clear that there were phones inside the detention centers and my, my contact details were being passed around a lot of them after a few weeks and that this information was really hadn't been getting out in the same way. And um, I just started gathering it like and that and yeah, the, the sources, I mean, they were in huge danger, like. People were really going to huge lengths. You know, they would tell me, like, I'm not messaging my family. I don't have enough data to talk to my family and to you. So I'll just talk to you because I want you to know this information. Or, you know, people would, um, yeah, they'd like, they'd only, you know, they'd turn on the phone at night. So my my uh, messages would suddenly, you know, all day it might be quiet. And then around 11 p.m. suddenly I'd start getting messages from many different detention centers from people saying, here's what happened today, you know, here's a photo, here's a video, here's evidence, anything that they could send to make me understand or also calling for help, you know, this person needs medical care, this, you know, we haven't eaten in two days, we haven't got water, we need this, there's a child with this illness, you know. Um, and so that's, yeah, that, like that was the, the lifeline. But there were, I mean, there were detention centers where either I wasn't in touch with people or potentially there weren't even phones because I know that in times, for example, actually strangely when there was conflict in Tripoli, it would be easier to communicate with people in the detention centers because there was less oversight because the detention centers were militia run. So the militias could be distracted, you know, by the war, basically. But when there was not conflict, that was when things would get very strict and it would become hard to communicate with people. And some people I did lose contact with for weeks. Um, and some people, you know, I, I, I actually have lost contact with completely. So, um, yeah, it, it was dangerous. And in addition to being dangerous and difficult for the refugees, that's also on your end, there are a lot of challenges associated with receiving these streams of information. How did you deal with the kind of practical challenges as well as the ethical challenges of getting all this very personal, very sensitive information and reporting on it? 
Yeah, I mean, I guess to give you a better, a better actually answer for your first question, that was largely why I wrote a book because there was a lot that I couldn't publish at the time, and um, that was for you know safety reasons largely um, that I couldn't identify sources that you know I had to strip anything that might identify them. But also, I was aware if I published something, there could be a search of that. You know, and this did happen. Like, like my sources would ask me, please publish a report on this, like, please publish it. But then the next day there would be a search and everybody um, would be searched for phones and, and some phones would be confiscated. And of course, you have to question, is that worth it? And I, you know, I don't I don't know that there's a perfect answer to that. So I would discuss the consequences with with my sources and and generally first actually a lot of my job became passing information from them to humanitarian organizations uh, or to the UN so I wasn't publishing a huge amount of what I was receiving I was passing that on between you know um different organizations that that we were hoping that might be able to help them and generally when I published something it would be because that uh, those attempts had failed and something had, you know, or if there was an emergency, like a very serious emergency situation. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I don't know that there's a, that there's a perfect answer, except that uh, like practically it became that I set my WhatsApp actually was set to download everything that I was sent. So for example, people would take videos to try and prove there was one guy who was being, who was brought to, um, this was quite regular, but people were being kind of like forced to assist the military, the militias during the conflict. And so they'd be brought to areas where like huge amounts of weapons were being stored and they'd have to, you know, lift those weapons and uh, wash, wash military vehicles. You know, in some cases they were offered the chance to fight or they were told, you know, if you fight, we'll give you extra food, things like that. Um, and so they would take videos to prove this, but I couldn't publish those at the time because it was too dangerous, but they wanted that evidence to exist for the future. So my phone was set to automatically download everything that I was sent. But then, of course, I began to get very frightened, you know, if I didn't have internet, if I had to go on a flight, for example, or even if I was underground because um, I was living in London for the first part of this reporting like and I didn't have an internet connection that was concerning so yeah it was a very intense time um and yeah I don't I don't know that yeah it's a challenging time I don't know how many people have faced this sort of situation specifically but you you're anxious all the time you don't want any danger to come to the people that you're in communication with but at the same stage if they're telling you you know we're in a life or death situation now and if you publish something that could help us so we want you to publish something then I do think that that they also have you know it it would be unfair of me to say I'm the only one who can evaluate the risk I think that they have the best idea of what the risk is Hmm. So moving to discuss kind of one of the aspects of life for these people in the detention centers that you discuss in the book that I think is really quite illuminating on a number of levels because it draws together um, what you've been talking about of kind of risk assessment. It also sort of links up the personal life and the impact of policies as you've already discussed. And that's kind of how being put in these detention centers Um, how that influences plans and agency around love and marriage, particularly 
for the refugees caught up in these detention centers. Um, and this is perhaps an area that we don't necessarily think about, right? We think about kind of the danger of it and the getting into the boats and worrying about communication or drowning or food or violence and all these other things. And yet you show really clearly with um, some of the testimonies and evidence in the book that it actually being in these detention centers impacts a much wider array of kind of life circumstances in a lot of ways. So I was wondering if you could kind of give us a bit of an insight into how these people you've been speaking to, how they negotiated and thought about love and marriage in the immediate term and also kind of long term, given these very dangerous circumstances. Yeah, sure. Um, So, yeah, so with, with writing the book, I mean, I wanted to make sure that you could see the humanity of people, you know, I, I didn't want it to just be a big list of kind of human rights abuses, because I think that when we, you know, the whole way that these systems and structures are set up, it's all about dehumanizing, isn't it? And, um, and for me, I also felt like I was contributing to that, because when I did reports, I had to strip so much identifying information, like all of the identifying information that it became that, you know, you were being so vague that people couldn't imagine a real person being going through these experiences or being behind it. And um, one of the things that I was interested in, I mean, I'm always interested in this, but it's like personal relationships and how people deal with a detention situation or how they deal with any sort of situation in terms of their personal relationships. And this was something that started to come up because this book is based on like years of communication with people. And a lot of that would just be, you know, general chatting. It wouldn't be, you know, tell me about this terrible thing or that terrible thing. It would just be, you know, at that point you have somebody who's who hasn't seen sunlight for a year maybe but they've they have nothing to do and they're so they're like looking for someone to talk to as well so um yeah the the journeys I think people don't understand as well these migration journeys a lot of the time seeking safety it takes years and years so you kind of lose uh and you you've kind of given up many people have given up on their old lives you know on what has happened before and they also realize that like they're going to if they do reach safety in Europe they're not really going to come across people who understand these experiences necessarily and there was the first time that I started looking at relationships and, and love and marriage and all of that was in a detention center called Abu Salim. Um, that was one where the guards who were who had been looking after it ran away or they disappeared anyway during conflict. And the refugees and, and migrants were basically left to look after themselves. And I was really fascinated by this because... They, they basically set up a committee to govern the detention center. Um, they started imposing their own rules. They, they didn't want to, you know, they felt like this was still the safest place for them. So they chose not to leave because the rest of Libya was also very dangerous for them. And they ended up just staying in this detention center. But in a lot of the detention centers, men and women were kept in separate halls. They weren't allowed to mix together. And in this detention center, when the guards ran away they all ended up mixing and um I spoke to people there who said you know everybody's falling in love basically like we haven't you know the men hadn't seen women the women hadn't seen men in in months or in some cases years and suddenly they're all getting to intermingle and some of them did end up like staying together getting married but 
Um, in other cases, you do have marriages of convenience. And that's what I also looked at in, um, in Libya because of the way that the evacuation uh, program happens. So there is like a very small number of people who get evacuated through, you know, uh, the UN. So it's kind of like a legal route to safety. And that also takes years and it's not guaranteed at all. You know, it's kind of like a, a I don't know, it's, 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 your chances are still very tiny, but they're better if you're in a relationship or if you're, if you're married, basically. Um, and so you would have some people who said that they were married to basically do favors to other people or, you know, there's one uh, detention center, Tejura, where I document that there were actually people getting married. You'd, you'd write a letter. So if you were in the men's cell, you might write a letter to the women's cell. And uh, there were kind of detainees who worked with the guards. They were called capos. And you might give one of them a letter and uh, ask them to take it to the women's cell and see if somebody in the women's cell would agree to to marry you basically or to say that you were married and so you might not even have me met but you'd um, end up being evacuated together and some of those relationships did stay together and then you also had a lot of people I mean there's more obviously more detail in the book so I'm probably not explaining it very well but there's there were other people who had been in love with someone who had left them behind you know they were married or they were engaged and they were pining the the person they had left behind and a lot of the time that would be men that had basically agreed or decided to go first so that they could then send through family reunification once they got to a safe country they could try and make sure that the woman didn't have to go along this dangerous route you know which is kind of rife with violence and um, you don't have a guarantee of surviving and so they they'd want to make sure that their partner didn't have to get exposed to that or even partner and children um, but they'd end up in the detention centers where they were considered as single men so they didn't have the same uh, likelihood of being evacuated which I know is very hard for some people that they actually had to consider you know will I enter into a, a fake marriage or will I actually, you know, get married to someone or will I stay true to the person who's behind me and potentially spend years in this one detention center? Thank you for explaining that. I think it does really powerfully speak to the human the human aspect of this. Um, and that is something that can get lost. So I'm glad it was in the book. Um, and I wanted to pick up on something that you mentioned before, that sometimes it was easier to communicate when there was violence outside because the militias were, in essence, distracted from oppressing the people in the detention centers. So we already talked about the context of a lot of this is the fact that Libya doesn't have a central organized government and hasn't for a while. Um, but the civil war in Libya has kind of gone through ups and downs. And in 2019, restarted in a pretty um, high-level way, I guess, a quite intense way. So how did that impact the refugee centers and experiences um, in Libya? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to say that, and I, I honestly was new to, I hadn't reported on Libya really before. I mean, I had followed the news, but I, but I wasn't aware so much that actually the fighting like you said it kind of ebbed and flowed I wouldn't say that there was any period that was completely peaceful and I knew that because like I said the 
the refugees and migrants, they were all being held in militia bases. So you could tell when there was conflict, they'd end up being in the middle of it, basically. But um, but yeah, that, that war, so it was Khalifa Haftar, the Eastern general, um, declared that he was going to try and take Tripoli with his uh, Libyan National Army, the LNA, on the 4th of April, 2019. Um, and I remember it like very well, actually, because I started getting so many messages from people who were just terrified. And he, uh, yeah, that, that war went on for, I mean, a long time, but that became, you know, it was very dangerous for refugees and migrants who were in detention for many reasons. Uh, one of the ones that became very obvious very quickly was that weapons were being stored in the detention centers and that uh, detainees were actually being forced or, you know, they were being forced to move them around or to even help militias or even to go to militia bases to go on the front line um, to be assisting them. And that, I mean... Yeah, that that was like very dangerous, and also it pretty pretty quickly became clear that at least in, uh, you know, in in one or several detention centers, detainees were warning that they were being used as human shields. I mean, they weren't this in several, but in one detention center, there was subsequently an airstrike, which killed more than fifty people. They were like they were. There was no registration that had been done. They were not named and. They were buried in unmarked graves. Um, but they afterwards, you know, the the UN-backed uh, Tripoli-based government was saying, you know, this is a war crime that you've targeted innocent people that Haftar's side had. But at the same stage, it's also a war crime to use, you know, civilians as human shields. And that, that was the other allegation that that was also a war crime that was being carried out. Um, so yeah, the refugees and migrant like they were right in the middle of it. They became, you know, used by everybody. And at the same stage, like you said, there was that kind of weird counterpoint where people did have more freedom in a certain sense. And I definitely noticed like the repression increased at times when there was more peace. Like there would be, um, you know, just games played with them. Basically, there were things like, you know the water would be turned off all day except for 10 minutes or they'd be, you know, deliberately denied food, things like that. Whereas actually it became a bit easier for people sometimes during the war if, you know, to to move around a bit more, they could move out in the compound sometimes or, um, yeah, they they just weren't being observed so much. But... Yeah, it was, it was complicated and that was something that took me a while to realize as well because obviously the war sounds more dramatic and it was absolutely terrible and people died in it and, you know, they were abandoned, they were frightened all the time, they were hearing bombing, I was being sent audio recordings of people, you know, in absolute terror but but yeah, both neither like neither is a good situation to be in is it and then there was also a, another militia attack on another detention center called Kasser bin Gashir where several people were killed as well that was by the um by people aligned with the LNA and that the allegation there was that they were trying to move them so it was a militia base as well and um and you know when what the refugees basically what the victims said was that 
they that the management had been trying to move them out but they were refusing to go because the management was trying to move them to a detention center that was like 180 kilometers outside of the city and in that detention center a person died an average of every fortnight from medical neglect and a lack of food um and so they didn't want to be to go there they felt like they'd be forgotten there that actually it was safer to be on the front line of a war rather than in a detention center where there was no aid and no foreign organizations and no assistance and uh and one of the allegations then was that the you know that that this militia attack had been a deliberate attempt basically to get them to leave so that it could be used as a military base so that brings up a really important point because why well, why would you want to stay <laughs> why would you want to stay in one of these detention centers um but you detail throughout the book that there is an actor that we haven't really talked about yet that is also quite complicated because there is what you show in the book quite a lot of discrepancy between sort of the stated aims and roles and actions of these actors and what seems to actually be happening. And that's the UNHCR and the IOM, so the uh, UN Office in Charge of Refugees and the International Organization for Migration. Um, What role do they play in these inhumane refugee detention centers? Uh, So... Yeah, IOM and UNHCR, they're both UN agencies. Um, UNHCR is the one that's mandated to protect the rights of refugees. So uh, so that's their role. And then IOM has different roles depending on the country. But in Libya, one of the things that they're doing, I mean, they visit detention centers, they do some uh, medical aid and things like that. But they also oversee the, it's called a, like a voluntary repatriation program, but it's basically an EU-funded program that sends people uh, often out of detention centres back to their home countries. So it's called voluntary, but, I mean, that's very arguable because if you're locked up in a detention centre and you have no other way to get out and you've been there for months or even years and, you know, people are dying of tuberculosis and you're not being fed, like, then, you know, you might see this as your only option. So um, so I think it, by the time I started reporting on this, or I forget the exact figures, but it's around 50,000 people that had been returned, like tens of thousands of people anyway, have been returned to home countries through this IOM, UN, uh, sorry, EU-funded program. And then UNHCR as well. Those two agencies are receiving a huge amount of EU funding. So, I mean, I started... When I started reporting on this, one of the first things I did, I contacted a Libyan journalist to try and verify information. And then I started contacting NGOs because I thought, you know, there must be NGOs or UN agencies who have access to these centers who can help people there. And um, and quite quickly it emerged that they did sometimes have access, but that that access wasn't guaranteed. And there were a lot of like conditions that had to be met, you know, UN agencies, for example, if they visited, they'd call ahead. They might not be given access anyway. They might not be allowed into certain parts of the center. It might be that people were handpicked to come out and meet them rather than that they could enter the halls and see everybody. Um, so there were a lot of limitations. But the reason that they were particularly or are particularly important is because the EU, when you interview uh, European politicians and you say, Um, you know, 
basically your policies are responsible for turning like returning tens of thousands of people to detention centers that have been compared to concentration camps you know and how how is that how what like how could you do that um they will say that we don't approve of the detention centers and we do want them closed but in the meantime we're funding the un to improve the conditions inside them and so that's why the un becomes very relevant there because they are being, you know, they are being referred to by the European Union um, as kind of like not a justification, but like a, a explanation or a, you know, an answer for what is happening. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. and so the UN between UNHCR and IOM, they have many partner organizations. That's what they're called. They're kind of other NGOs that they give money then to. Um, the only big NGO that I know of that operates in Libyan detention centers that doesn't take EU money is MSF, Doctors Without Borders. Um, but the others, yeah, like they tend to be like they're taking EU money. So uh, I began to be contacted by staff that were working with UNHCR, with IOM and with other agencies that basically said they're very uncomfortable about how they feel that they're being used, that they felt like they were being used to whitewash the brutal effects of EU policy and that um, they can't speak out directly. You know, they might they might kind of like in a roundabout way criticize the conditions, but they wouldn't say this is happening as a direct result of European Union migration policy. And I know that um, a lot of staff working for them were, were kind of uncomfortable about that. Um, and yeah, then there were allegations. I mean, it's, it's written better in the book, of course, um, but there were allegations that they were misrepresenting the situation. And that was something because I had direct contact with people inside the detention centers. You know, I would see the statement that was released by UNHCR, for example, saying that people had been moved maybe out of harm's way. But then I would be talking to those people and I would know from talking to them and from triangulating that that information and from talking to, you know, anonymous aid workers and, and all of this, that actually they were in extreme danger, but the impression being given was that they, you know, that something good had been done when actually that wasn't necessarily true. And so there's lots of examples of that in the book. Um, so I was wondering if you could maybe tell us about one of those examples. Um, what was the GDF? Yeah, Why was it created? And then what happened? So the GDF um, was the gathering and departure facility. It was kind of built as an alternative to detention. And basically, when I started reporting on this for a long time afterwards, um, it was kind of it was kind of said that this was going to be set up, that this was going to be, you know, not quite an answer to everything, but that it would be a good development and that the situation would get better. And it was meant to be. Um, because UNHCR specifically was running or is running the evacuation program. So since 2017, I think around 7,000 people now have been evacuated from Libya. And these will be people who have, you know, generally what would be seen as legitimate refugee claims. You know, they're entitled to international protection if they can actually get to a country where they can claim that entitlement. And, um, you know, they can't go home. So they're pretty much stuck unless they can be evacuated um, through another means. And they and this GDF was just set up basically to gather 
those people before they left. So they were just meant to go there before they were evacuating the country. And initially it was, I mean, it was delayed its opening, you know, by the time it opened, it became clear it's not, you know, an alternative to detention. It's just a place where people go before they are evacuated, Um, which already they're like the very lucky people, you know, who have been chosen for that. And, um, and yeah, it was called the hotel because uh, one, one guy told me it's the nicest place that anyone has been in years. So they used to refer to it as the hotel. They, used, they were referring to UNHCR as the organization as well, which took me a while to cop on to. Um, and it, it, yeah, it, it didn't last very long. So it ended up that there were disputes over the Libyan authorities, like what kind of um, control they had there. It became that there were also abuses happening inside the GDF. Uh, it had been built on militia land. It was being controlled. Uh, the outskirts were being controlled definitely by a militia. And actually, I interviewed people. It was across the road from um, another detention center called Trikalsika. And, and some of my sources in Trikalsika were brought to the GDF to basically perform slave labor um, under, this, under this militia. And there were other investigations done, like not by me, by Associated Press that showed that you know, the the level of kind of corruption that was happening there, that money was being spent on these catering contracts that were going to Libyan militia leaders or, um, you know, that there were so-called ghost employees, like people who were being paid who weren't showing up. And so uh, it ended up shutting down. Uh, yeah, it ended up shutting down. And part of the problem was actually that so there were a series of uh, catastrophes. One was that there was a detention center that I mentioned before called Tejora, where there was a airstrike and um, at least 50 people were killed, potentially more, potentially a lot more according to witnesses. But like I said, there wasn't any registration. There wasn't, it wasn't clear um, who had even been inside that hole. And the survivors ended up uh, leaving that detention center and walking to the GDF and basically demanding to be let in, just saying that they needed safety, they needed protection. And they were allowed in, but um, but yeah, I think that they there were attempts then made to get them to leave again, which they were refusing to do. And then there was another group who left the detention center called Abu Salim. This was a few months later. And they also ended up marching to the GDF and also asking to be let in. Everybody wanted safety, you know. They weren't safe in the streets of Tripoli. They could be kidnapped. They could be taken by traffickers, um, by smugglers. You know, they were subject to all sorts of exploitation and abuse. So they just wanted to be in one location where they could feel safe. And, um, and the GDF then was shut down, and everybody was forced again out on the streets. Um, and that was kind of the death of the so-called alternative to detention. And just to clarify, because you do mention it in the book, and I think it is worth um, emphasizing, when you talk about people marching to the GDF or going from Tajura to the GDF, how, how far are we talking? Uh, I think um, I need to check the exact distance, but I think they walked for hours. Like, but right. the they're, other thing you're not walking across the street, right? This is a, people choosing to walk yeah. long distances on foot 
in the middle of a war zone. Like you don't do that on a whim. But the other and the other thing to remember is that some of those people actually hadn't been outside literally for years. Like so that was one of the things that um that really struck me that day. I mean, it was astounding to me that some of them were saying, you know, their eyes hurt, that they hadn't seen sunlight, that they couldn't actually look um properly at where they were going. And people were weak. They hadn't been fed properly. Yeah, that was like a very brave, um, you know, a very brave effort. And and the interesting thing was that they actually started getting support from the people they encountered. So they came across uh, Libyans on the way who even the police, they said they ran into some police who started giving some of them lifts, the weaker people, because they were saying, um, you know, we need to... Uh, I don't know. I think everyone was just so astounded at this kind of show of strength that they were thinking it's good to to assist with this. So, yeah, that was mm. pretty incredible. So speaking of astounded, um, you talked a little bit about this before, but I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit more. What has your experience been like when you go to interview EU officials or UN officials or individual country politicians and sort of say, hey, this is what's happening. Are you aware of how bad it is? Kind of what's your response? What What's happened when you've done that? Uh, I mean, because I reported on this on year for years, there wasn't like one big interview that was, um, you know, that was the time that I did that. It was more that I had kind of pretty regular communication with a lot of people and a lot of officials. And definitely with the EU Commission, I was getting generally stock responses um, you know, it wasn't like a speaking interview. It would be that I'd send um, uh, questions or, you know, they, di- they didn't want to do a speaking interview because I attempted to get um, some. But uh, but others who interviewed them, I mean, there was, it, yeah, it's a mixture that, that sometimes people will admit the, the failures or even um, a former EU migration minister, he said that yeah there is a contradiction in terms of the eu policy and in terms of the fact that um you know that that what people is being subjected to basically that it is problematic so that it's not that they're not aware of this but um but one thing that you generally get people saying especially if they're speaking you know anonymously if they're not actually making a statement is that actually they have to get re-elected and that the general public does not care about this or does not want this to change and is quite happy to hear the migrant crisis is over and that the numbers of people arriving in Europe are down and we actually had that like in 2019 I, I, I put it in the book that the EU two I think it was two months before the European Parliament elections they came out and said that the migrant crisis is over and you know that obviously was um depending on how you define it I guess they they saw what had happened as a success but I interviewed other I mean UN officials they will tell you that the situation is bad it's not like it's not like no one is saying the situation is bad but when it comes down to the semantics or particularly who is responsible there are things that they can and can't say or can and you know or won't say um and the other one is uh sorry i lost my train of thought there no worries um i kind of want to follow up on uh something again you mentioned earlier in this vein which is the idea of the refugees having legal rights or legal assistance and you detail in the book that there are some people putting together legal challenges uh, against the EU for these policies that have had these results. 
Um, can you tell us maybe a little bit more about sort of where that's at currently um, and sort of where you, whether you think that that's a viable, if that's going to work? Yeah, sure. I mean, this was something, again, that I actually became aware of uh, partially because I was being contacted by people who wanted evidence. Um, and I, you know, speaking to lawyers, they say, they say like changes, change comes through the law. Like you're not going to get changed by publishing reports. You're going to get changed through court cases. Um, so this, yeah, it's something that I've, I've followed and I did do a chapter of the book on it, but there were, there's, there's lawyers all over Europe, to be honest, I think you are looking at this on different levels, but, um, but in terms of challenging, I know that there's a challenge with the EU court of, sorry, the EU auditors, auditors course. Um, there's another one. Uh, sorry, maybe I need to look up the exact name of it. No worries. I think people can look up the details in the book. Um, sorry, but I'm wondering yes. kind of what you think of, you know, do, do you think this will work? What sort of your impression been of this um, type of challenge, I suppose? I mean, I guess that's the thing, because I was trying to find when I started reporting on this. I mean, I, I, in that chapter, I start with the one that seemed to me to be most uh, extreme or, you know, uh, you know, when it happened, I, w- I was quite surprised that there was a submission to the International Criminal Court to have the EU investigated for crimes against humanity. Um, and I interviewed the two lawyers who were involved in that. And it seems like that hasn't progressed, really. But I know that now the ICC, the, the ICC are more focused on looking at specific Libyans who they can see as individuals who are responsible for different things. And they, um, and they, yeah I know I continuing that like I think two weeks ago or three weeks ago the prosecutor has came out and said uh, that there is evidence that crimes against humanity and uh, war crimes are being carried out against refugees and migrants in Libya so I imagine that that will develop but very slowly and to be honest maybe people reading the book they can kind of see that I became a bit disenchanted in all of this because like I said I was being contacted for evidence and then was realizing you know first of all I had an ethical challenge for myself because actually my role is publishing reports it's not supplying evidence to lawyers you know and I I also wonder you know was I supposed to be doing that or am I supposed to be doing that um, and so I saw my my role as actually just publishing reports, but I was aware of these court cases, um, and I did talk to lawyers about them, and they, uh, yeah, they they tried like a few different tacks, like in terms of challenging the financial spending, because that's a big thing in the EU that there needs to be or there should be transparency in terms of how money is being spent, and huge amounts of money are being spent in Libya, um, and also across, I mean most of or like a lot of Africa I think the EU trust fund for Africa is billions of euros and that's being spent across 26 countries and it's designated as crisis funding or at least it was so there wasn't proper oversight of that um, and then in terms of other court cases the big challenge that I that I heard or that I came up against was that lawyers will say 
there's two things so if you bring a court case and it fails that's actually that actually could have devastating impacts so you really want to have the right challenge the right court case or be challenging the right specific part of the law and the second thing is that by the time that that actually that that situation is actually resolved or that there is a verdict it's highly likely that the EU or, you know, this happens with other rich states too, that they will have found some other type of loophole. And so actually the European Union Coast Guard funding um, is said to have come about as a result of the Hershey decision, which was in 2012, which was what decided that Italian ships couldn't uh, return refugees and migrants to Libya. So as a result of that decision, you know, they had to find a workaround basically. And now um there are yeah that that's just a big concern that there will be another workaround that that will keep happening and so no matter what the decisions are and i think the decisions that i detail in the book i think they've all they're all kind of stalled i haven't seen much progression on them but also i know that you know that even by the time those decisions do come around potentially um things will have moved on and that's what i find quite difficult as well reporting on this because I had I had a lot of like questions for myself you know when I'm provide I'm gathering this information and who you know who who can I uh like what should be done with it that that is going to be helpful to people and I had a lot of lawyers contacting me you know looking for witnesses or whatever and of course I'll pass on that information to people um, if I think they might be interested, it's their decision whether they want to take part and stuff. But actually, there were so many people in immediate danger. And if you have a legal case or a legal decision, that's going to take years. And the other big challenge was that they wanted witnesses who were already in safe countries. And those those are generally the people who actually want to move on with their lives rather than, you know, keeping reliving this. And it's the people who are in in Libya or in, you know, other dangerous countries who are the ones who could do with, you know, a legal decision that would help them or that would get them some assistance. And uh, they're the ones that lawyers are generally less willing to work with because they see that as, you know, they can't protect them. Um, and another, Thank you sorry, for explaining an, that. An, no, an, go ahead. No, another thing that, uh, I know this isn't your direct question, but another thing regarding legal challenges, which is detailed in the book, is that I actually attended the trials of two uh, smugglers or traffickers, um, Kidani Zecharias Habtamariam and Atuel Digwotem, who's known as Walid. And both of those were people who I had heard about um, quite a lot from from refugees and migrants who had come particularly from East Africa or the Horn of Africa. And they were both men well known for like torturing and, um, you know, sexual violence and extortion and all of this. And they would have warehouses where they kept around a thousand people inside and were basically torturing people every day, trying to extract more money from them. And eventually between them, I think they were accused of moving tens of thousands of people towards Europe. And so I heard in 2020, uh, yeah, 2020, that they were both apprehended in Ethiopia. That was early 2020. And that had actually happened due to the quick thinking of a victim who had gone back to Ethiopia and literally ran into one of them in the street, Kidani. And he had called the police 
and the police had arrested him. And so both these smugglers ended up in Ethiopian prison. And I, I went to Ethiopia, I got a journalism grant, I ended up being the only person not involved with the trial uh, alongside a Ethiopian journalist who translated for me who actually attended so I was the only independent observer um, along along with this Ethiopian journalist and that really shocked me because a lot of the rhetoric that we hear is about tackling smugglers and you know tackling the business model of smuggling and you know making sure that they can't operate and these were two of the men that I knew from my reporting were like some of the most notorious um, and nobody was paying attention to these trials and I contacted a lot of embassies I think I contacted the International Criminal Court or at least I discussed with the prosecutors um, in Ethiopia whether they had been in touch and I spoke to to other like NGOs, you know, the UN asking why nobody else is observing these trials. And what ended up happening was Kidani, one of them, uh, escaped. He seemingly bribed a police officer, or at least that's what the, the allegations say, but he got out anyway um, and has disappeared again. And that, you know, that was devastating because I watched the victims, you know, I watched the people who testified against him who were absolutely terrified and had to come face to face with him and say what they had done um, or say what he had done. And in the end, there was no justice for them at all. Thank you for kind of explaining that. I think it's a good example of sort of what maybe some of the lawyers you mentioned being scared of if a case goes wrong, it could be really disastrous. In some ways, that's actually a good kind of example of it, unfortunately. So that that's just to be clear, that wasn't a case going wrong because that was a case where there wasn't proper observation. I mean, what they were worried about with the case going wrong is actually if there was a legal decision made that legitimize something terrible um so so in that case that Kidani was actually sentenced but it was only after he had already escaped but it wasn't yeah that wasn't a case going wrong that was just a lack of you know a lack of attention or a lack of interest I would say fair enough and but but Um, that I mean that showed to me like because a lot of you know a lot of what we see is kind of the criminalization or or the you know policies that are aimed at punishing vulnerable people or punishing you know the victims rather than actually going after the perpetrators and I know that you know all all the people that I interviewed who had been smuggled by Kidani wanted him prosecuted they wanted him to suffer for what he had done to them but um, instead they're the ones who end up suffering you know and in terms of I guess that comes around to sorry Maybe I'm not answering very clearly, but in terms of what we were saying about the prosecution of the EU or who should be responsible in the EU, that's one thing that I really, um, that really came across to me when I was interviewing lawyers was that actually for both political and legal reasons, it would be very hard to prosecute uh, European, you know, either politicians or civil servants who had been involved in this. It would be easier to go after specific Libyans. And for a variety of reasons. And, you know, also, of course, with a legal, you know, a legal situation, you can't, you need to have individuals, you can't just kind of go after an entity or a system. Um, But that means because the EU is so kind of bureaucratic, and also quite opaque in terms of how decision making works, particularly if you're on the outside, that means that it can be 
very hard to ensure accountability. And I guess the book is the reason that I wrote the book was a quest for accountability in a way, or just, you know, making sure that if there are any efforts to have accountability, that this evidence is available. I don't, I don't personally know, you know, I'm not going to say who I think should be held accountable, but I do think that, um, that there has been a noticeable lack of accountability for, for what has happened over these five years. And, so a lot of it is documented in the book, and I think that's a really nice kind of conclusion, a really clear idea of the purpose of the book, or one of the purposes of the book. Um, but now it is published. So um, what are you working on next? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know, to be honest. I'm I'm still kind of publicizing the book. And then also, um, I work, as, like I said, as the Irish Times Africa correspondent, so... I'm just doing a bit of general reporting, but I don't know. It's a very, this is my first book. I never, I, you know, I haven't had this experience before and particularly something that, you know, you, you need to keep reminding yourself how horrific it is, how consequential it is, in my opinion. And at the same stage, it's been very, very difficult to get anyone to care. And that's what I'm hearing again and again, even when I'm doing these interviews. And that's why I'm so grateful to you for your interest. Um, you know, that, that the general public don't care. And I guess it's important to say this isn't just a story about Europe and Africa. Like, that's what I've documented. But but the bigger picture is that the rich world is basically um, putting up its borders. Like, it's what we in the rich world are inflicting on people who, you know, just had the chance of being born outside that area. Um, and, and also, like, how... Like whether those efforts to try and stop people from moving, for example, are actually increasing oppression and increasing, you know, systems where people are suffering in other parts of the world. And and I think that there's a lot more questions to be asked about that. I know in the US, um, you guys have your own your own uh, related issues going on and also in Australia and, you know, definitely all around Europe. Um, it's happening and another thing to mention sorry is that um, this is actually a pivotal time I didn't know this when the book got published but the head of the EU border agency Frontex has just stood down um, and that's partially because of allegations that the human rights of refugees aren't being respected by the agency and we don't know I don't I don't think yet they've decided who will lead it so this is you know kind of a I don't know. It's a it's a big question. It's a big challenge. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing your time and insights with us to discuss um, these big topics and challenges. And of course, thank you for um, documenting the evidence in the book. Again, titled "My Fourth Time We Drowned," published by Melville House Press in 2022. Um, listeners can go find it. It's out now. Um, and obviously they can follow you in your writing on this and many other topics. So thank you um, for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me again.